I could get the clicker, Paul, that'd be good. Thank you. Uh, just a quick heads up, um, there's going to be a little part in the sermon today where it requires a little bit of audience participation, so don't be, don't be shy, uh, join in please. Uh, but before we start, uh, let us pray. Uh, Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you uh, that we can come today uh, and open up your word and hear from you and hear what you have to say, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, impacted by your truth today. Lord, I pray for, for me that my words would speak your truth and that any falsehood from my lips would fall away and be forgotten. Lord, we just pray, Lord, uh, that this time will bring glory to you alone. Amen. Telos. What a great way to start a sermon, but with some Greek. The Greek word telos means ultimate object or aim, end or goal, purpose, what something is designed to do. Some things only make sense when you see their purpose. They seem incomplete if they don't or can't fulfill that purpose, their end goal. A can opener. If you don't have any cans, what good is a can opener to you? What good is a can without a can opener? Let's pretend you don't have those ring pull ones. What good is a letter that sits in a drawer and is never mailed to its recipient? How can a hammer do what it's made to do without a nail? Come on. Oh, well. What's the point of something that can't fulfill its purpose? Some things in life are truly pointless and they serve no purpose. So as we begin our sermon today, I have two questions for you. What is your purpose? What are you made to do? And the second, what good is a king without a kingdom? Last week, we took a break from our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Nathan took us to Genesis chapter 16, the story of Hagar. Hagar, she was a slave, a foreigner, mistreated. She was sinned against and also a sinner herself. She was a problem, an embarrassment, no one special. She was a fugitive, pregnant and alone, lost in the wilderness, But God saw her, he found her. He knew her, yet invited her to speak. God listened to her, he called her to obedience. God promised to protect her and to bless her. We saw how Jesus is the same, caring for the lowly and the outcasts of society. People like the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus was looking for the lost, drawing them to himself. We saw how Jesus loves us, even though we are nothing special, even though we are sinners. Even though we are Gentiles and foreigners, Jesus demonstrated his love for us on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin upon himself and redeeming us to bring us into his kingdom. This is a theme that is shared with our passage today. And now we're back, back in the New Testament And we're going to see more of Jesus and his mission to save a people to himself. 
Through chapters 1 to 4, we have seen the Apostle Matthew firmly establish that Jesus is king. Jesus is king through his lineage. Jesus is king as proclaimed by the star. Jesus is king worshipped by the Magi. Jesus is the king who is the fulfilment of prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus is king as declared by God the Father and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus demonstrated that he is not an ordinary man. He is the Son of God. He is God. As God, Jesus is able to do more than we can. Unlike Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Jesus was able to resist the temptation of the devil. For the first and only time in history, there is someone who does not fall into the trap of the Satan's lies. Jesus is the one who does what we can't. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He refuses to put God to the test. He serves and worships God alone. And because he does what we can't, he's the only one qualified to save us. And now we enter our passage for today. The passage starts with some bad news. And now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And Jesus' cousin, John, has been arrested. But this is only bad news in the same way that when entree dishes are taken away, it means that the main meal is coming soon. John's mission was to prepare a way for the king, Jesus. John completed his role. He fulfilled his purpose, and now the king is here. Jesus, having been baptised as a sign of obedience to the Father, Jesus having the Father declare his acceptance and pleasure in his Son, Jesus having been tempted in the wilderness where he passed the test, Jesus proved that he can stand up against the devil. He is not like the rest of man. He is the perfect, sinless God-man. Jesus is the King. And he's ready to get to work. What sort of work is Jesus going to do? What sort of work is going to be done by the King? Kingdom work. Jesus is going to build his kingdom. But how will he do it? Will he use his skills as a carpenter to build the kingdom with his hands? Is he going to assemble an army to take on Rome and liberate Israel? We'll have to find out. His first move is to move. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew doesn't go into detail about why Jesus moved from his hometown, but Luke does give us that insight. We're not going to look into it in detail today. It's a sermon by itself. But the summary is this, from Luke chapter 4. Jesus left Nazareth because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He plainly told them that he was the Messiah, that he was the fulfilment of Scripture, and they tried to kill him. The people who Jesus grew up amongst 
tried to kill him, but it wasn't his time to die, and so he left. And so Jesus moved from Nazareth to a fishing village, Capernaum. The region of Galilee is about three quarters of the size of the Lockyer Valley. Located 100 kilometres north of Jerusalem, it was home to about 15,000 people spread out over 200 plus villages. Capernaum, about 40 kilometres from Nazareth, is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Tiberias as the Romans called it. With about 1,500 people, a little bit bigger than Collinsville, Capernaum would have been one of the more significant towns in the area. And while it did have a synagogue and a Jewish population, both Capernaum and Galilee had mostly Gentiles who lived there. Matthew heralds Jesus' arrival in this town with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. This passage, quoted directly from Isaiah chapter 9, should at least be a little bit familiar to us. We read the passage at Christmas time. You've probably heard it most, if not all, Christmases. Specifically, a verse later on in the chapter. Here we go. I, 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 Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace, I, 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 Isaiah 9, verse 6. Very good. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 7, immediately after that, that this child, he is the promised king. He will reign on David's throne for all time and his kingdom will never end. This child is the Messiah, the promised saviour, Jesus. This saviour was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. The saviour, the Messiah, the king. Jesus has come to Capernaum in Galilee. Now Zebulun and Naphtali were sons of Jacob, also known as Israel. Their tribes were given the land where Galilee is now, but it is no longer their tribal land. If you know about the history of God's people, you know how they sinned against God, how they were unfaithful and rebellious. And so God punished them 
He sent the nations to conquer them. They were taken away into exile out of the land he had given them. After King David and Solomon, the 12 tribes of Israel were divided. Once one nation, they were now two. Judah and Benjamin became the nation of Judah. And while the other, tri- other 10 tribes formed the new nation and took the name Israel. For 500 years, the two kingdoms were ruled by mostly wicked kings. Kings who led their people astray to worship other gods. The laws given to Moses and to the people were all but forgotten. Finally, to Israel, the northern kingdom, after years of rebellion and rejection of God, God sent in the mighty Assyrian army. The northern tribes were destroyed and the survivors taken away. They were mixed with other prisoners of war and dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. Foreigners, Gentiles, were brought in to work the land. They mixed with the few Israelites that remained and became known as the Samaritans. These Samaritans were looked down upon by the other Jews because they were only half Hebrew. And they eventually took up the region of Samaria. The land given to to Zebulun and Naphtali would never again belong to their tribes. The majority of its inhabitants were Gentiles. Syrians and Romans and others lived there, both in Capernaum and Galilee. It truly was Galilee of the Gentiles. The southern kingdom, Judah, suffered a similar fate a short while after the northern kingdom fell this time with the Babylonians. However, in God's providence, a small remnant of the tribe of Judah returned to their land. Both kingdoms were never truly kingdoms again. The history of God's people for the next 500 years had been one of subjugation under a rotating roster of world powers, culminating in the time of Jesus with the Romans. For years... The lands of Israel lived under the darkness of shadow and death. Remember, God had chosen these people. He had made wonderful promises to bless them, to make them fruitful, to give them good lives in the promised land. But their sin and their wickedness had instead brought God's judgment. But the whole time, through the prophets, God insisted that he would be faithful to his promises. He was still determined to bless them and the whole world through them. There were a few faithful followers of God through this time, people who held on to this hope. But finally God went silent. For the last 400 years of this, he didn't send any prophets, not a word from God. But now this changes. The people didn't change. They didn't seek God and God finally thought that they were good enough for him to visit. It was God who took the initiative. The arrival of Jesus is like a great light that shines for the people of Galilee who are living in darkness. On Christmas Day, Alon spoke to us from John chapter 1 talking about Jesus. In him was life. And life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the light shining in the darkness. Light is hope for those living in darkness. Jesus, who was rejected by his people, Jesus is the great hope of Israel. Jesus is the hope that Isaiah and the prophets speak so much about. The prophets spoke about how God would decisively act on behalf of his people. He would send a new king and establish a new kingdom. He would make a covenant with them, a new covenant where their sin and rebellion would be dealt with and they would flourish, a kingdom without end. And this is what the few faithful people had been waiting for. Many had waited their entire lives, but it hadn't arrived. Imagine you were part of the faithful remnant of God's people, waiting for that day to arrive, not knowing when it would happen, or even if it would happen in your lifetime, but still eagerly waiting on the Lord. And then... Like a three-year-old at 6 a.m. on Christmas morning, the first words of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4, 8, 4, 17 would make your head pop off with excitement. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time that you had been waiting for was finally here. The kingdom has arrived. This is why Jesus had come. He had come to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. This was his mission, his purpose. The kingdom is here. It's at hand. If we look back at chapter 3, we see that Jesus' message is the same words as John's, yet somehow it's different. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was preparing his people to... Sorry, John was preaching to prepare the people for the king who was coming. But Jesus is the king. He is here, and he's here to build his kingdom. And this kingdom is better than any before it. Israel's sins would be forgiven. They would be blessed, and the nations would stream to them to be blessed as well. They would gain the right to be called sons of God. It would be like a return to the Garden of Eden, back to paradise, living for eternity in fellowship with the King of the universe. Doesn't that sound like a nice place to be? Paradise? The perfect place, living with the perfect King? Did you catch the condition, though? The call of Jesus. 
repent. Now, what does this mean? What is repentance? What does Jesus want us to do? When we think about repentance, we often think of it in a negative way. It's about what we should stop doing. We should stop sinning. We should feel bad for our sin. And that's an important part of repentance. But there is a positive side too. Repentance involves more than that. It involves turning from sin and turning towards God. Turning from and turning to. It means we turn away from the old ways of thinking and living, turning from our sin and turning towards Jesus and towards a new way of thinking and living and being in this world. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change of habits. Changes that are suitable for people who live as part of his new kingdom. Repentance is not just a change in our outward behaviour, but a realignment of our inner self. It's a change of our soul, a change of our hearts. But how can we change our hearts? In Ezekiel chapter 36, God is telling his people of the coming judgment because of their rebellion and their wickedness. But there, in the middle of his dire message, God is promising a future hope, a future kingdom where God himself will gather his lost people and bring them to himself and into his eternal kingdom. From Ezekiel, And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will clean you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Jesus is here. He is calling his lost people from all nations. He will replace their broken, dead, rebellious and sinful hearts. He will replace them with living hearts and he will give us his spirit to help us obey. We can't change ourselves, but Jesus can change us. He can give us a new heart that leads to repentance. And it is then after Jesus has changed us, that we desire to do good, to please our Heavenly Father and follow in the footsteps of his Son, Jesus. We learn to be like Jesus, learning from him and how we should live as citizens in his kingdom. This is called being a disciple, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus, learning from him the way of being in this world that promises happiness and flourishing. Jesus is offering your best life, but be warned, this life is nothing like what you would expect. And so that's what Matthew's gospel is all about. It's about learning to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has come as saviour to deal with our sin, to bring us into his kingdom of heaven. 
And so back to the passage, back to Jesus. The next thing that Jesus does is to gather helpers. If you were a newly established king, you would need officials, helpers to help you run the kingdom. You'd want wise, smart, educated people, people who knew how to run a kingdom, people who could run an economy, control the armies, pass legislation, a police and a judges to enforce it. But what does Jesus do? Who does he select to help him? While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus chose fishermen. Yep, fishermen. Not wise, educated men, not the elite from society, but rough, smelly, working-class fishermen. That doesn't make sense. What would they know about complex fiscal policies? And what we see here is that Jesus didn't select his men because of their expertise or their wisdom or their knowledge. Jesus is the king of the universe. What could these men possibly offer him? Jesus had something else in mind. He wasn't even going to use their fishing skills. He had a new occupation in mind for them. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus' job for them was to join him, to join in the work that he was doing, to bring the lost people in, to invite others to become fellow followers with them, to invite them into the kingdom. If it wasn't their brains that Jesus was after, maybe he wanted them because of their people skills. After all, Jesus was going to use them to gather people. But Peter was headstrong and impulsive, not an easy combination. Also called by Jesus at this time were the brothers James and John. They were ambitious, known as the sons of thunder. They weren't exactly the people that worked well with other people. No, Jesus wasn't after their brains or their people skills or anything about them. He was after them. There is nothing that they could offer Jesus but still he chose them. Like people with dead hearts, there is nothing that we can bring to Jesus to earn citizenship, a place in his kingdom. Salvation is to be received, not earned. And that is what these men did. They answered the call of Jesus. They followed Jesus. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. They turned from their nets to Jesus. These four men were the first of Jesus' disciples. Disciples, remember, is what we think of as an apprentice. Someone who sits at the feet of Jesus and learns from him. A new way of being in the world. People who follow their king and learn from him to be like him. They didn't know what it meant to be fishers of men, but they had seen God, and they would leave their life behind to follow him. And so, Jesus, with his disciples in tow, begins to show them his kingdom work. And he went out through all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction of the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and having seizures and paralytics. He healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I'm not going to go into detail about how Jesus healing the sick and the diseased and and the demon-possessed is yet another fulfillment of prophecy, but it is. Jesus is reaching out like a light to those living in darkness. It's the lost he came to seek, the lost to save and seek. And those that recognises that they needed someone to rescue them came from all around. Syria to the north, Decapolis to the east, Syria, um, Samaria and Judea to the south. Jesus didn't need anything from these people, but they needed him. So what about you? Do you want to be in Jesus' kingdom? Do you want to join the kingdom? Do you want to spend eternity with the king of the universe in the perfect kingdom that he has made for us? This offer is available to all. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't need anything. The, the, Jesus knows that the only thing that you need is nothing. To know that you can bring nothing to the table except your sin. To know that you are a sinner in need of a saviour. The kingdom is here. Will you join Jesus in his kingdom? The kingdom is here. What should we do? The kingdom that God promised is right on our doorstep. Jesus says that the only way to enter the kingdom is to repent and become his disciple. To repent from our sin to turn and to follow Jesus. This repentance is not a one-off conversion activity. Yes, you are justified once for all time, but repentance is a lifelong habit, a practice of turning from living life our way and turning to Christ and living as he intends. We should urgently repent. We should frequently repent as we continually align our lives to Jesus Christ using his word as our guide, listening to the Holy Spirit that he has given us, working in us to be like our saviour, Jesus. I say to be like Jesus, but I want to be clear. We can never be the same as Jesus. We are never going to be as big as Jesus. We are never going to hold the world in our hands. We have different roles to play in the kingdom. He is the only one qualified to save us. He is God. He resisted temptation. He is the perfect, sinless man. Though he was perfect without sin, he died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin. Jesus died for us. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. Death could not hold him. Jesus defeated sin and death. Jesus is God. 
Jesus is king. We are not. We cannot die to earn the salvation of another person, though we may be called to lay down our lives. We cannot forgive people their sins. We cannot perform miracles. We cannot save anyone. Only Jesus does these things. But Jesus does have a job for us in the kingdom. He doesn't need us. He could do this work all by himself. But in his love for us, he invites us to join him in his kingdom work. Matthew finishes his testimony with these words. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has a job for us to make disciples, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them and to train them to be disciple makers. This is what we are called to do. We are called to do his kingdom work, to follow the king, to proclaim him and his kingdom to the ends of the earth. That is our purpose. And we won't be alone in the work that he has called us to do. He will be with us always. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are king and that you rule your kingdom with love and mercy and grace. We thank you for coming into this world that you have made to rescue us, to redeem us, to bring us out of darkness and into the light, your light. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you have done within us to give us a new heart, to give us your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to walk in repentance, to look to your word. May it be a light to our feet. Help us to walk in obedience as we become like our master, our Lord, our King, like you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you completed your mission, that you went to the cross to give your life for us, to take the wrath and punishment that should have been for us. But you took it upon yourself. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you didn't stay dead, that you conquered death, and that you rose again. Thank you, Jesus, for inviting us to do your work in the kingdom. Help us to complete the work that you have given to us, that we might proclaim the gospel, the good news that your kingdom is here, and that you have made a way for sinners to be a part of it through your work on the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you are always with us. In your name, amen.